Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Happy St. Patrick's Day. We're helping you celebrate by going to Ireland, talking with Dubliner Alan Dunn. Alan is the CEO and founder of Archive Capital. We focus on research into managers in the commodity, ball, trend, and macro space. Right up our alley. This was a great chat with Alan on the current craziness in commodity markets, how macro traders have evolved over the years, and why warts are a good thing in a trend manager's track record. So grab your green beer and let's send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's Managed Futures Group, whose experienced team has been helping investors vet commodity and trend managers for 20 years. Speaking of those trend managers, with all the moves in commodity markets lately, go check out our trend-following white paper at www.rcmalts.com, then the Education tab and White Papers link. Back to the show. All right. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Actually, we're recording a week ahead, but uh, it's going to be released on on St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patty's Day to our Irish guest, Alan Dunn. How are you, Alan? Great, Jeff. Uh, great to be here on St. Patrick's Day, even though we're a little bit ahead of time. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, you know, who better to have on on St. Patrick's Day? Exactly. Well, it's great to meet you. I've been a fan from afar and heard you on uh, Top Traders Unplugged and whatnot. So good to meet you. What's the holiday like over there in Ireland? It's it's uh, it's actually a big one this year because uh, with with COVID, um, there was an extra public holiday um, allocated this year. So that's actually coinciding the day after St. Patrick's Day. So it's a mega uh, holiday weekend. Uh, so it, it, it's going to be a, a pretty big weekend. And you've got um, the Six Nations rugby culminating that weekend, too. It mightn't mean a whole lot to you guys, uh, but it's a big deal if you're a rugby fan in Ireland. And uh, you've got a whole a host of things, obviously, St. Patrick's Day celebration. So it, it definitely will be a big weekend in Dublin. Who, who are the Six Nations that participate? That are Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, uh, France, and Italy. So oh, nice. um, you keep France. the Kiwis out, out of there so someone else. Yeah, can we, we play the Kiwis and the Aussies in the Springboks uh, typically in the autumn. Um, they tend to come on tour here and, uh, you know, it's good good chance to see who's kind of in the ascendancy outside of the World Cup. They don't tend to play the, the Northern Hemispheres and Southern Hemisphere teams that much. Um, but the, the Six Nations, it used to be uh, the Five Nations, you know, um, it's it's been going back many years, and it's kind of the big domestic, uh, or I suppose, big northern hemisphere uh, rugby championship. Fun. Uh, yeah, I'll look. I'll look for the results. How's Ireland's Keep chances? Hard. Pretty pretty good. I mean, we've got um, that will be the final round, the St Patrick's Day weekend. Uh, there is uh, rugby this weekend. Ireland are playing England, so obviously the result of that will be out when this is out, uh, and then Ireland plays Scotland in the final match. So it's you know they tend to be pretty good uh, good social events too. Uh, but you know the rugby is uh, pretty exciting too. So looking forward to that. Love it. Uh, and where in Ireland do you live? So I'm living in Dublin, pretty close to the uh, city centre. I actually, you know, if I looked out my window here, I'd be able to see the Aviva Stadium where uh, where they play the rugby. So I'm very That's central fun. and, uh, yeah, very, very well set up for, for all of that. Uh, I've never been, so I got to come visit. It's on, on my list. Absolutely, yeah. No, if you're, if you're, if, I'm not so much a golf fan, I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'd probably be a bit of, 36 handicap or something like that but if you are a golf yeah. fan you definitely uh, find lots of uh, great courses over here 
Uh, I love it. So let's jump right in and talk about the crazy volatility in commodity markets past few weeks. Uh, what's jumped out to you most watching this price action? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's, it's um, you know, we were chatting just before we came on. It really feels like kind of once in a generation type of price moves, you know. When I started off in the industry uh, in the '90s, you know, uh, I was a I was a trader and an analyst in uh, back in Bank of America in the mid '90s. And uh, when you start off in trading, you read lots of books as to try and figure out how to try and make money trading. And you know, one of the first things I read was Market Wizards. And you know, when you read those books, people are talking about the the crazy moves in commodities in the, in the 1970s and trading those markets and the market being up limit you know limit up five days in a row. And you think, oh yeah, that's great, but you know we'll probably never see those kind of markets right. again. The old but, days. But here we are, and and we're we're, we're seeing them, and uh, and and we're seeing those kind of crazy crazy events. Obviously, we've got a humanitarian uh, tragedy and catastrophe going on in Ukraine. But you know, I think um, if you were to go back three or four years and say, well, you know, you got to have uh, some strategies in your portfolio that might help you out in times of war or crisis, people people wouldn't have believed it. So it is it is a good reminder that that all of these things come in cycles. And just because we haven't seen something in the markets for a number of years, it doesn't mean it can't come back. And I think that's definitely what we're seeing at the moment, obviously. You know, we've got, you know, I suppose the move in oil is, you know, it's not like we haven't seen something like that before. We've seen crazy moves. We, you know, we had negative oil prices just a couple of years ago. We had oil ratcheting up to $147 in 2008, only to to reverse very quickly. So, you know, you couldn't say it's nothing that we've never seen before, but certainly things like wheat and, and nickel have been uh, pretty crazy by, by any standards. Yeah. Any of the managers you track tied up in that nickel situation? Yeah, I was speaking to a manager yesterday, actually, who, you know, pretty, pretty peeved about the the, the situation, um, you know, in terms of they had had sold some 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 nickel and executed their orders um, whenever it was to Tuesday morning, I think. And, you know, so those 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 have been cancelled now. So it's uh, it's going to be very contentious. It's it's probably not great, great for the industry, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, my theory, I did a tweet thread on this of like it basically just they chose go do a capital call on all the members of the exchange or get everyone upset over a few hours of trading and, and chose the latter, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, but now it's going to get even right. If we open limit down, limit down, limit down, people are really going to throw a fit of like, Hey, you canceled my sell at 98,000. Now it's at 28,000. Yeah. Could get no, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's the integrity of the market is always what's uh, so important in these situations. So when that gets undermined, it's, it's, it really is a serious, uh, serious issue. And what is generally the LME's got a great reputation over there in UK? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's, it's it has been the, uh, you know, I've just been reading the history of, of it. And, uh, you know, people making parallels with the, uh, tin crisis before which i i hadn't been as familiar with but but you know i i think um yeah it, it it's one that's going to be a, a difficult one to manage and that's for sure so so i think it's a it's it, there's a big reputational risk if if it's um you know depending on how it plays out uh what was the tin crisis i wasn't aware of that one yeah i i just read about it very <laughs> it, it, it was just alluded to as, as the most significant crisis for the lme since the since the tin crisis yeah got it um and how do you view right we saw an oil went from 95 up to 130 then dropped all the way back to 105 how do you view trend following in particular's affinity for these large givebacks of open profits 
Yeah, it's it's one that it does irk investors for sure. Um, I think you know trend following managers deal with this somewhat differently depending on how they approach things. You know what you have in some instances, but obviously volatility scaling up. Uh, you know managers will in some instances scale back their positions because they're going to size their positions relative to, to volatility. So that can have a nice feature that can be appealing to to investors in the sense that you're you know, you're taking profit as the market is rallying, you know, as volatility goes up. And we saw that as well in obviously the big sell off in, in 2020 as well. If, you know, to the extent you're not doing that um, and, and you know, I, I suppose not just looking at one market, when you get big moves across a number of markets and then you're inevitably going to have a, have a correction um, and you will have a big give back and it can be a bit frustrating. But, but you know, one of the big features that you see with trend following is, the big gains tend to be when you get that big risk on and then the market extends. And that's that's the whole uh, point of, 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 of trend following, that it, it is uncomfortable. Um, and, and, you know, people who trade the markets will always say, you know, it's those positions that feel uncomfortable are often the ones that are the ones that will deliver for you for, over time. But that's a feature of trend following that you have to have that risk on. You know, you might say, oh, it might have been better to scale back to position, take profits, but if you mechanically did that, that that would, you know, take out a chunk of the return that you get in trend following over the years. So it's, I guess it's another of the features of trend following's uh, return profile that makes it, you know, behaviorally challenging for people to hold. Um, but it is what it is. And it's just one of the, the features, you know, the what you get in return from that is that, that very interesting, re, you know, return profile that particularly alongside that equity portfolio. Right. And I view it kind of the investors view it as a bug. And the managers view it as a feature. So it's like trying to bridge yeah, that, that's probably fair. Yeah. Right. Bridge that gap between the two. And and if you did throw a bunch of profit taking on there, it would start to lose its trend following profile, right? That's right. You're going to lose some of the convexity because you're going to be taking profits. And in some of those instances where you get the big move, so you would have already have taken some profit ahead of, you know, you know, maybe the, the move up from include from a hundred to, you know, above $130. So um you know, so it, it, yes, some managers uh, do, obviously managers do volatility scale and effectively take profits as as, as the market rally in, in, in a rising vol environment. But um, yeah, it, it's the, the flip side is you're not going to have the risk on when you get those um, outdoor events, as, as they're called. Right. You are, that can make up for years worth of flat sideways, slightly well, that's down. It. Yeah, right? absolutely. And that, that that's what you're really looking for in the return profile, and um, you know, and and it's like uh, if you look at the periods of where, where trend following has done well historically, be it you know 2008 or even 2014, early 2015, you know, you'll see months, you know, for your typical trend follower where they're up maybe eight, ten percent, two or three months, and you think, okay, now would be the time to take profits. And yes, there might be a, there might be a dip, but then you'll see another two or three months of uh, double digit returns. And you know, if you if you take a profit, that's you, you're going to take out those really outsized returns out of out of the whole uh, return series, and and your, your overall return, um, you know, it, it, it is going to be much diminished. And how do you you mentioned convexity in there? So do you do you view the profile more as a long options convex payout type profile or a momentum? Right, there's a little it's a bit semantics and all that evolved, right? But if you're on a bank platform choosing risk premium, you might choose momentum. That's a little bit different than convexity, right? 
Yeah, it's interesting, and, and I know this has come up on the Top Traders uh, Unplugged podcast a bit. You know, you know what? It's kind of like what's in a name. You know, is it is it just trend following, or is it you know how, how much of the return um, attribution you get? Is it just uh, by by following the momentum and the trend, or you know, a big chunk of it is the risk management as well. So. Uh, equally, people say, "Oh, managed futures is, is a long vol strategy, and, and it has comparisons with that." And then, of course, you'll have periods where, where volatility picks up, and, and managed futures actually loses money, or trend following loses money. So, so none of these labels, you know, are are you know fully uh, descriptive of the strategy by themselves, but there are elements to them for sure. You know, part of the return from trend following comes from the fact that you know uh, there are behavioral aspects that that the market tends to be stuck in a range for a long time and then you get something and and you know a significant event and uh, what 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 that does it causes everything to reprice so you know clearly what we're in at the moment is a clear repricing event because you know your bunch of supply has been taken out of certain commodity markets and people are trying to grapple with the a new geopolitical regime so what happens with a re, with with a, with, a, with a repricing event it, you know it ripples across many markets so so there is that trend following element and that 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 you can capture but it's not just that it's the risk management as well it's it's the fact that you stick with those winners and you risk those profits uh, as you go with it that that can generate that that convex profile and then what that gives you is a return profile that very often uh, does well in a rising volatility environment and actually you know some of the, some of the best trades you know we've been talking about commodities but it's been you know the, the short-term interest rate markets have been really interesting for trend followers as well this year why not only have we seen breakouts and trends but you've seen a massive volatility expansion and that's a really really interesting property of of, of managed futures that you, you know when you get that vol expansion you're into a trade and into a position with a big big size and that's what can generate uh, a really nice return so there's multiple dimensions to how you describe what's going on in the trend following portfolio uh, and where the the returns come from and I think that's where you know some people say oh it's just you know following the trend or it's risk management or it's it's long vol it it has elements of lots of, of of different aspects so it is it's more nuanced than any of one of those individually and just to Dig on to that vol expansion concept, right? If I'm trading, whatever, a million dollar trend following program in two year notes, I want to risk 50 bips of my portfolio on the trade. When vol's real low, maybe I'm doing six, seven contracts or something of two years, right? Then, it, yeah. yeah. So, 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 so with, with, with really low vol, you can get into a position with a tight stop, and 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 because your your stop is so 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 so. And, and it's a tight stop because volatility is is low. Uh, and then if you get a breakout and a volatility expansion, then you're you're already into the position in large size. But the market is now moving, you know, three or four times what it had been moving for the previous, you know, three or five years. And you know, so you so you're going to have, um, you know, a really uh, a really really nice risk reward profile. Right, and I think that's prob- that's what makes it convex, not just a momentum trade, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on that topic, what what are your thoughts on the managers who do some vol targeting? That's kind of been a it's a little bit of a knock on some, right? Of like, okay, if I take away that convexity by doing vol targeting, the vol expands and now I have to reduce position size. Yeah, I mean you've got different shades of this that people will will do that to to a degree and that will dampen it but obviously you, you will tend to adjust the volatility exposed so you can still capture that 
the, the, those periods of, of volatility expansion. I think, you know, I think you have had historically philosophically different approaches and, and you know, trend following has evolved in different ways. You've got the, you know, the turtle trading type approach um, of, of, you know, risking a certain amount on, 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 on discrete bets and, and uh, doubling up and, and managing the, 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 the stop losses on kind of a, on a, on a, on a position by position basis versus the more holistic, you know, uh, managing the, the, the risk in the overall portfolio and, um, and looking at the, 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 the risk and volatility of that overall portfolio. So, you know, that's not to say one is right, one is wrong. They're just, um, they're both, uh, you know, trying to take advantage of a, a phenomenon that, that, that people believe is there in the markets that, that you get these big moves and, and trends in markets. But, but I suppose it's solving for maybe a different utility in the sense that, you know, okay, not everybody is going to have the appetite to stick with the return profile that you get with the more traditional approach of, of, of really running at that high vol. That's not to say that they, they, the more nuanced approach of managing the volatility is wrong. It's just, it's just saying, okay, we don't want that extreme volatility. Uh, we want to you know, behaviorally have a, have a different type of return profile. So we're going to approach the problem slightly differently. Love it. Um, we'll get into that in a minute of maybe you put a portfolio of them together to solve some of that. What are your thoughts on investors looking to add trend or commodity exposure now after such a run-up, right? I think back to 2008, tons of money f- flowed into the space starting you know, 2009 when everything rallied back, vol crushed, and four years later, you had a lot of people unhappy with managed futures and trend and flowing right back out of the space. So what, what are your thoughts on, did they miss it? Is it the start of something? Is it that, I know it's an impossible question, but give it a shot. It, it is an impossible question. And I, I suppose, um, you know, you, you can, you can try and make parallels and maybe, yeah, is 2008 the right parallel? You know, even if you go back to that period, we, we had seen, you know, a good period for, for, for trend following in that whole decade. You know, the 2000, 2010 decade was a good decade because you had, you know, you had an equity bear market in 2000, 2002. Then you had the, the commodity super, super cycle. Was that? Sorry, yeah, the second bear market again. Yeah, yeah and then you had a second bear market in 08. And before that, you had a commodity super cycle, kind of 2005, 6, 7. So we had really strong moves in, in commodities in that period. So, um, it, you know, I, yeah, it's, it, it is an impossible question. I think, you know, um, at some point, obviously, there will be a give back in this move. But at the same time, you know, if you look back at where we've been for the last... 10, 20 years, certainly the last decade was unusual to 2010 to 2020. Um, from a macro perspective, you know, we had very low volatility in GDP. You know, if you, if you look at US GDP in that period on a quarterly basis, it was between maybe minus 1% and plus 2%. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but very low GDP quarterly. There was no recession in the whole period. There was no boom. So you had this kind of concept of secular stagnation. So from a macro perspective, it was very slow and steady, not a lot going on in the world. We didn't have an equity bear market in that period. Um, you know, maybe not so much uh, um, geopolitical risk. It's always hard to quantify how much of that you, we, we've had. But certainly as we moved into this decade, it's been very different. Obviously, we've had COVID, so that, that precipitated a deep recession and a big recovery. 
Now we've got, um, you know, we we had started to see volatility in relation to the the, the Fed tightening cycle, and now we've got a um, a war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. So it's already, you know, shaping up to be a very different decade. It'd be, I think, it'd be foolhardy to suggest that we've seen the volatility and things are going to revert back to what it was like uh, for the last decade. I would think a more reasonable expectation would be more volatility ahead. We still have to navigate the Fed reducing their balance sheet uh, from eight, nine trillion, whatever it is. Uh, so that's going to be a challenge at some point. You know, they have to think about the timing of that. So I think there's still plenty of risk out there. I, I think um, I think it's a, it's a good environment for, for managed futures and macro-oriented strategies. So, so I think it is still uh, a good time to be looking at them. And as you mentioned, macro, what are your thoughts there? Has the world moved away from the classic discretionary macro guy taking a huge bet on XYZ market? And that's more systematic now? Have those worlds have kind of blended? Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about that just, just earlier today. And if you go back maybe five years ago, there was this big interest in systematic macro, quant macro. And you know, we were talking about why was that? It was partially... Partially, maybe a little bit of uh, disquiet with, with traditional trend following, and people were saying, "Okay, maybe quant strategies purely focus on the price are, 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 are not enough, and and maybe there's something interesting in in the whole systematic macro space." But but talking to people, there does seem to have been more interest in the discretionary macro um, uh, space this year, and and I, I guess that makes sense in an environment where you get something very different. Um, People might say, well, this is an environment that favors being nimble, being opportunistic, not relying too heavily on relationships. I think that, you know, I come from a multi-manager background, so there's, you can always see the merit of blending different strategies. And, and the reality is all of these different approaches will have their, their, their particular market environment where they will do better or worse. So um, I can see the merit in, in, in discretionary macro making, making a comeback now. Interestingly, as, as is often the case, you know, we saw a lot of the, the macro houses, you know, either stopping to, to manage external money or just, you know, shutting up shop in, in, in the last, yeah, you know, three, four, five years. And that's often a sign things are going to improve. Yeah. So, so the cycles have, have proven to be, to, to be you know, uh, repeating a, again. Um, so I think I think it is in definitely an interesting environment for for, for discretionary, uh, and that's that's been proven in in what we're seeing in terms of manager performance data at the moment. Uh, and that's not to say that that that, that some quant strategies can't can't do well in this environment. Uh, to me, it's like they're finally right after twelve years. Right, the discretionary guys were like the Fed's balance sheet, all this stuff yeah. is causing problems, and the right equities just rallied straight up. So I think they got a lot of you guys aren't good. You didn't catch any of this bull market in equities. And that's kind of yeah. why investors flowed out of discretionary. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, uh, I started off, I uh, spent a lot of time in trading floors in the early part of my career and people traded obviously with a macro mindset and macro traders always have that bearish, bearish mindset of what's going yeah. to go wrong in the world, right. whether it's like, you know, there's no reason for bond yields to stay this low. They, they you know, the, there's always going to be that bias to be to be short bonds at, at low yields. There's always going to be that bias to, to try and pick the top in equities and look for for the catalyst to, for, for for the reversal. So, in the same way, it has it hasn't been a great. Uh, it was it was a tough period for trend following. It was also a more difficult environment for for that type of traditional macro in the last decade, and that's obviously changed now. Um, and along those lines, just having been in the industry so long, what do you? 
see both in the macro, the managed future space, the overall hedge fund space, like what's changed the most in the last 20 years? I think, you know, I, I think there's some merit to, to what people have said in terms of obviously we've, we've learned that some hedge fund strategies maybe, you know, are, 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 have been thing, you know, things that, that, that people learned on trading desks, you know, whether it was carry strategies or, or momentum or, or certain things like that, that were maybe uh, you, you might have seen it be seen as an alpha strategy at one point, you know, 20 years ago that, that are less. So now you're seeing obviously more, um, more systematic trading, I would say. I mean, you know, if you go back when I started off, uh, quant strategies were still relatively in their infancy. You know, I remember I started off on a, on, a, on an FX trading desk and there was a guy there running quant models, trend following models, but they were there was a bit of mystique around it. You know, people didn't really know what they were. It was kind of an, a, an unusual approach, you know, trading you know, buying at the highs of the day generally yeah. uh, it seemed like a, seemed like a funny thing to do when you're sitting on, on a spot desk. So, so there's been more more embracing of of quantitative strategies. Um, now, obviously, we've shifted more even into you know uh, more sophisticated quant strategies with more machine learning things like that. So, so, so certainly there's been an evolution there. I think you know, but as we've been talking about here, even say it's it's as much. I things stay the same. The, the 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 more things change, the more things stay the same. Now we're seeing bigger moves in markets like we haven't seen for a couple of decades, and you know people maybe aren't prepared for that. Um, people mightn't be, um, uh, you, you know, anticipating this these kind of extreme moves in 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 commodities and uh, are scrambling to think about okay, well if this is the case, if this is the new market order, how do, how do we position for that? And I'd say one which we'll get into later talking about your firm, but one big thing that changed is the ability to access it through, right? Liquid yes, wrappers. That's right? true. Yeah, that's true as well. Yeah. So give us a quick bit on your background at Abbey and putting portfolios of managers together. Uh, and we'll dig into how, how all that works. Yeah. So I, I spent uh, just, just shy of 10 years with, with Abbey Capital, which is a, Specialist allocator in the managed futures uh, space and great firm. Really enjoyed working with the with the team there. Um, you know, one of the definitely one of the the, the largest allocators into the space. And um, you know, the philosophy there is obviously multi manager. You know, for partially for 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 what I've been talking about, like you have you have the broad category of of macro and managed future strategy. So so all of the strategies that are trading in the futures and FX markets and um, there's lots of ways of, of harvesting returns in you know in those markets, whether it's trend following and that can be short term, medium term, long term. There's short term systematic, uh, relative value trading, discretionary macro, quant macro, specialist FX, specialist commodity trading. So um, it's all about um, trying to build portfolios that you know deliver that overall uncorrelated return profile relative to traditional assets, but also. You know, being cognizant of the fact that what you tend to see in this space is pretty large dispersion in performance and you know low, 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 um, low persistence. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, obviously in any given year you'll have a widespread between the winners and the losers, but the people who are top of the league table in any given year, you know, that tends to that tends to vary year to year. Okay, you might see firms doing well for a couple of years in a row and then they'll slip down the league table and then they'll make a resurgence. Why? Because there's something about their system that might have been 
favored by the market environment for a year or two, and then that changes. Uh, the challenge for investors is is differentiating, you know, what element of performance is just by chance and just just been favored by the environment, and what element of performance is actually, uh, you know, true manager skill. So, so I think there is, um, you know, that there is a, a a good case for for diversifying within the space. And you know, a lot of times I, you know, speaking to investors, people would say, you know, we don't really like fund of funds, we don't like multi manager, except in the managed futures and macro space, because. You have that uh, very high high dispersion in in, in performance, and, and it can be tricky to to select one or two managers. Do you think some of that problem with dispersion is just a categorization problem, right? Like under the managed futures umbrella, so many different kinds of strategies. Of course, you're going to have this big dispersion. Some of it is, but not. But even within like strategies, you'll still get the dispersion. So even within trend following managers, if you look at say the stock chain CTA, or sorry, the stock chain trend index, trend. so ten large trend following managers, you will still get. Once you adjust it all to a common volatility, um, trying to remember what the numbers are, but you know, it certainly certainly it could be the order of forty percentage points in, in in a given year, which is pretty substantial. And and I think it comes back to the point that. And within trend following, you have a lot of you know, unique decisions to make as you construct a trend following program. You know, firstly, what markets are you going to trade? How are you are you going to allocate the risk? Um, what time frame? You know, is it short term, medium term, long term trends you're going to capture? Uh, how you how you deal with volatility? As we've been saying about, do you kind of target volatility or not? How you risk manage? How you risk manage in a drawdown? So you've got a lot of different levers that you can pull. Um, and and what that means is, you know, and even then breakout versus uh, kind of more moving average type models, um, and all of these will, you know, well, what you'll tend to find is that the managers will by and large be reasonably correlated, but being reasonably correlated doesn't always translate into being very close in terms of actual performance. Um, so you know, if you take twenty twenty for example. You know, more breakout style trading tended to do better in in the first quarter. Uh, if you go back, you know, maybe um, you know, back into the last decade, managers with more of a fixed income focus probably did better. If you went to the previous decade, managers with more of a commodity focus uh, did better. And and obviously, we're seeing the, the more commodity focused managers having a resurgence uh, recently as well. But you know, it, it's easy to say now, oh yeah, I want to be with the commodity managers, but. Go back five years ago, uh, if you were a manager with a heavy emphasis on trading grains or agricultural commodities, it was pretty difficult, you know, and uh, pretty hard to make the case that, um, you know, things were going to change at some point in the future. So it's all about saying, you know, things work in a cycle, the world can change, what's working today may not be what works tomorrow. So if you want to build a robust portfolio, it does make sense to diversify as much as possible, while all you know, all of the strategies have the same ultimate objective of delivering kind of an uncorrelated ret- return stream relative to, to uh, traditional assets. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, was it just yesterday? Yeah, oil down, whatever, 20 bucks. Most all trend were losing money there, right? So it's like, if you take any yeah. one little snapshot, they're highly correlated, often yes. with the same positions, and yes. then can end the year, you know, 10, 15% apart. So That's yeah. right, exactly, and, yeah. And then did you ever and do any you research did, on like five-year periods or 10-year period? Did the dispersion come in the longer the time frame? Um, I think it, it, it may do. And, and I mean, certainly you do have that element of, of 
you know, mean reversion. But I think that the challenge with that is if you think about the cycle of allocation that, you know, people might, might you know, people, you, you, you go and position a strategy to an investor and say, okay, look at the return profile of managed futures and trend following and say, okay, that's interesting. And then what you do, they go and pick a manager. You know, often they'll say, well, who's been the best manager for the last three to five years and go with that manager. And then they're reviewing that manager three years later. Oh, suddenly that manager isn't the best. It's then yep. at the bottom of the retail. And then it becomes a difficult one to defend to an investment committee or a board or whatever it is. So, um, yes, that manager may then ultimately have a, have a, have a recovery. But at that stage, uh, the investor has exited. So I think there's a behavioral element to this that, that you have to manage for. Um, so so that's, that, that is part of the reason for, for, for thinking about diversification in the space. Yeah, the poster child for that to me is the uh, Wisdom Tree launched their e- managed futures ETF and chose the Trader Vic index, which didn't go short oil. Right, okay, they launched yes. it in 2012 or something because short okay. oil trade had been terrible. Yeah, and then of course, what's the next trend to happen? 2014, oil crashes. Trend makes a bunch of money in short oil, and that they're left sitting there without any gains. Yes, so yeah, got got to be careful which manager you choose for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so what were some of the big names you dealt with there? Like in terms yeah, of I mean, managers? Well, you know, Abby is a, a big a big allocator. So, so pretty much all of the main, you know, anybody who's running a CGA would typically reach out to, 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 uh, to have a meeting. So it's all of the big names to, to, to the smaller names. I mean, a lot, it's some of it is, it's in the public domain. If, if, if you look at the IBM um, mutual funds, you'll see managers like, you know, Graham and Aspect and, and Winton to, to FX specialists like, like PE and, um, you know, managers like, um, um, you know, like Revolution in, 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 yep. in Colorado. So, so it's the whole spectrum. And, and uh, you know, if, if you're going to employ a multi-manager, you, you know, you're, 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 you've got to expect the multi-manager to be able to unearth some managers that you're not going to, you know, uh, do it if, if, if you're not focused on the space. So, so certainly, I think as a multi-manager, part of the, uh, of the, the role is, is, you know, unearthing interesting managers. Part of it is the risk management and portfolio construction. Um, so you know, the, the, it, it's not just a matter of, of of looking at you know who've been the, who've been the best performing managers for the last number of years or who are the blue chip names. There's 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 not there's not as much value in that. And hard to believe, right? That Winton, Aspect, and I forget the third one, right? But all came out of that dorm room in Oxford. Um, That's yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, AHL, yeah. So um, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's one of the things you do see in the managed future space is that a manager or a trader might have worked at a different shop and I've been influenced by the kind of trading philosophy there and then spins out and starts to run a portfolio. So, so I mean, you have seen that that kind of philosophy, you know, in, infiltrating a number of different firms over the years uh, in the same way, like the, the turtle trading philosophy has underpinned a number of different firms in, in the US. So so um, the, the, those ideas do, do get passed along the way. And then David Harding came out, right? Was that two years ago, three years ago? And basically said, they're not a CTA. We're not, right? Stop doing this. Yeah. It seemed like it turned on a dime <laughs> right when he said that. That was an interesting one. And um, I think it was, you know, it was probably unfortunate timing. Um, it was around 2018, 2019. And um, it, it was uh, it was a, 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 at a point of time where we were writing a, a, a research piece um 
that that's uh, was looking at the market environment for for trend following and looking at why trend following had been difficult. So there, there was a lot of people saying, you know, trend following it doesn't work anymore. It's less attractive or too much money in the space. It's got too crowded, and. Uh, Winton's, you know, David Harding was also seemed to be part of that 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 perspective that that maybe the returns weren't going to be as good going forward. I think it was maybe misconstrued a little bit in the sense that you know trend was still going to be a pretty pretty decent part of their portfolio. Uh, it was a multi-strat portfolio, but obviously not as much as it, it it had been previously. So it wasn't the case that they were saying you know trend is dead. It's just that maybe there might be other strategies with with higher sharp ratios or, or more attractive features. But ultimately, it proved to be uh, that, that that wasn't the case because yeah. we've seen a, a bit of a resurgence of trend following since then. So, and then didn't they flop back to say no? Now we are going back to trend. That's right. So, so they they did the transition back to to a slightly higher allocation to trend following. Um, so that's I mean that, that it's interesting when you when when uh, when you're in the midst of that, it it is a difficult thing to defend. Uh, and I you know at that stage I was doing a lot of defending in, in client meetings saying it's the markets it's not something structural with with uh with the strategy it's just that we haven't seen big moves we haven't had these periods of volatility expansion like we're talking about we had um you know we we had a measure that looked at the number of markets that were experiencing a one standard deviation move over the previous 12 months and if you looked at that measure for the 55 major futures markets, I think at the end of 2018, there was one out of 55 markets, whereas mm-hmm. in a normal good environment with kind of volatile markets, you'd expect it to be maybe 25, 30 markets might be experienced in that kind of one standard deviation move. So we it, it, that period was, and it wasn't that there was no volatility. You remember 2018, we had a volatility expansion, Volmageddon um, was in February of that year. But it was choppy markets. There weren't markets with sustained directional moves. So often people will construct a narrative based on on, on something that seems, you know, um, seems appealing. Uh, and the narrative at the time was, well, there was a number of narratives. One was there's too much money in trend following. A second narrative was maybe markets had changed. Markets had got faster and trend followers were too slow to, to react. Another narrative was you had, the growth of high frequency traders and they were they were too nimble and they were eating the lunch of these traders um but you don't hear anything about all of those arguments now with ctas having a bumper year so you know what does that say it's it's you know people construct narratives uh to to, to justify or to to try and explain things that they struggle to understand and uh, you know it, it, it the reality is it's never one one or two simple things that 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 that, that are behind the uh, the, the performance of of the markets it's 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 much more complex than that that was a, a piece i wrote once the the problem with alpha it lacks beta right so if if it was easy to explain it'd be beta and you could just say this yes. is why this happened right yeah exactly. um, and you left one out of right the big complaint was central banks and intervention that's and that's all yes. dampening volatility so that's right so yeah what it sounds like your take is none of that was really true or some of it was true but it's such a mixture it's hard to p- pinpoint it yeah, I think possibly. I think certainly um, what I said about macro volatility could have been a part of it in, in the sense that we didn't see big variations in the macro backdrop. You know, um, GDP was slow and steady. Inflation was low. You know, when you get booms and busts in the macro cycle, then that translates into, you know, more or less demand for commodities. So that's the macro side. The second thing is obviously you have idiosyncratic events like we're seeing now. Um, and 
arguably we had less of those in that period um but it's like it just had a smaller opportunity set why that I is say, certainly the opportunity set was smaller i would say for sure i think the central bank one was interesting because it certainly did you know at times it seemed to be correct of in terms of dampening volatility but at the same time we did see some big moves say in 2014 in currencies with the euro selling off and that was at least somewhat linked to uh, European Central Bank um, monetary policy. So it can be, you know, there can be, it can be, uh, you know, seductive to to say, well, that's the reason for why that's happening, you know. But in reality, it can be more complex, I would say. But I think, you know, at a simple level, the way to think about it is, are we seeing their big directional moves on a sustained multi-week, multi-month uh, time horizon? Yes, we are at the moment. No, we didn't see it to the same extent back then for whatever reason. Going back, how many meetings would you take a year? How many managers would you analyze and do the due diligence on? Yeah, I mean, literally hundreds. Um, you know, a, a lot would depend. And if you go to a couple of conferences like, yeah. like Context, iConnections, MFA, those types of events, you could you could definitely do, you know, 50, 60 manager meetings of, over a couple of days. So if you have a number of those, in the calendar, then you're going to ramp up your your kind of manager connections in, into the hundreds. Um, so you know, I think I think it's definitely part of the part of the skill, part of what what, what you should do. I was uh, I'll give I'll give our top traders unplugged allocator series a plug here. I've yeah. been doing this uh, recently. I was talking to uh, Chris uh, Schelling recently from Venturi Wealth, and he was making that point as an allocator. You know, the question I was posing to him, how do you get better at due diligence? And you know, he was just saying it's just repetition. You know, if you if you just met one CTA ever, you know, as, as an investor, you say, wow, that's really interesting. But, you know, if you've met 100 or, 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 or a number of hundreds, then you say, OK, it's it's interesting. But I've I know another 100 managers who do this. So is this guy better or worse? So mm-hmm. I think there is a lot to be said for, for meeting a lot of managers. And, uh, you know, and it is interesting because. People, people in the in, in the industry, you meet a lot of very impressive people, and it's a very tough competitive industry. So you can be really high quality, but still just be you know middle of the pack in terms of uh, of the industry performance or assets or whatever it is. So it, I think um, I think meeting a lot of managers, uh, it's not just a repetition. You know, it, it is re- you know it's thoughtful reflection on 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 what you're. What, what you're learning from the managers as well and uh, and I think I think experience and perspective is helpful too you know because you'll always think back of oh yeah somebody will ask you about that manager you say oh yeah I remember that thing they did with their system that year and I didn't really like it and so, yeah. you know it's, it's always in the back of your mind whereas that's not something that if you just look at you know 10 years of monthly returns it won't jump out it's but that's what you learn from those kind of week in week out uh, engagements with the manager and that's where the value is uh any good stories like a guy showed up without pants on or anything to a meeting <laughs> i'm thinking of that will smith movie uh pursuit of happiness no i mean i'm trying to think i mean you do you, you meet lots of interesting characters it's uh and when you go to these events and people are you know you get all manner of of, of backgrounds whether it's quants or macro people or and, and and not not everybody is the most uh, uh you know socially adept at presenting and, and, and all of that. But, um, you know, no, 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 no meetings to report where people have showed up without their clothes on or anything like that. <laughs> uh, and how about what what are some of the screw-ups guys do where it's like, oh, you should have done that better, right? Of like, what are some of the table stakes for managers out there, emerging guys, 
What yeah. are some of the things you need to make sure you do when you're meeting with a group like that? I, th- I think, you, you know, you got you to gotta show that you're competent and savvy and thoughtful. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, look, I've, we've done the back test and it's got a great sharp and, you know, we're running at 15 vol and we don't expect to draw down to be less than 10% or whatever. And as an allocator, you're saying this just doesn't seem feasible. We've really? never seen strategies yeah. like that before. So it's probably not the case that this is going to be the first. So I think you have to be be, be realistic. Uh, uh, you know, if, if I hear if, if I hear that somebody saying that to me, I'm saying, OK, these guys are probably probably have over optimized their their system and they're not really um, that savvy. Um, and, and that would be, you know, a clear, a clear flag. Um, I think, you know, there are other practical things that, that, that people just overlook, you know, sometimes a certain allocators just don't turn over their portfolio very frequently. So there's not a lot of opportunity to add new managers. It doesn't mean that, 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 that you're a poor manager just because you're not getting an allocation. It's just, there might be only one or two slots in that year and there's maybe a hundred, 200 potential managers. So sometimes people seem to get a little bit disillusioned and you don't hear from a manager for a couple of years when, you know, all you can do really, really as a manager is to engage, you know, Keep, keep the allocator updated from a performance perspective. And if the opportunity arises and if the opportunity is right, then things might fall into place. So I think it's doing the basics is, is an important uh, important part of it. Um, but certainly, you know, being being realistic in the, in the return and the volatility profile and how that's presented is important too. Consistency is important as well. You know, if, if it's if something that has changed a lot over the years, then that's going to be a more difficult story. Whereas if it's fairly consistent, okay, great, you want to see evolution, you want to see research, but you don't want a system that went from being trend to short term to, to something else, or, you know, multiple iterations of the same thing over time. So lack of consistency would, would be a bit of a flag too. Uh, two things to unpack there. So one, how do you approach it? How do you view like this needs to come out of the portfolio, right? So all this good yeah. due diligence, all this stuff to get them into the portfolio. When yeah. you say this isn't working, you're coming out, especially yeah, in a trend when you could have five years of flat that's no fault of the manager like we've talked about. No, absolutely. And, and I think what you have to ask yourself is this outside of expectations and outside of you know statistical expectations. So you can have a period of underperformance and obviously it, it may be just by chance or maybe that the markets haven't been as conducive. So... I think there are th- things you can do to 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 address that. You know, obviously, if you look into the p- pattern of performance and look at the market. So, you know, if, if, the classic example: if you're a trend follower, you know, more commodity focused, trading the AGs maybe, and and those markets haven't been good from a trend following perspective. Well, then, you know, unless you're taking a strategic view on that the AGs will continue to be difficult, you have no reason to to remove that manager from from the portfolio. I think I think there are things that are obvious you know reasons for reassessing you know if people leave that that's one thing and um, i think if the pattern of, of performance is different to expectations you know so for example if you have allocated to a manager you know on the expectation that it will do well in a period of rising volatility okay if low if you have low volatility and they've underperformed fine then you get that period of volatility expansion and, and they still underperform well then that's that's something about the pattern of performance that's outside of your expectations that you would have to review Equally, you can have something you know positive that's outside of your expectations, and um, in terms of the pattern of performance, that that could be a, a reason for 
um, for, for for reviewing the manager. So you know, obviously, if if you allocate via a managed account, you'll get a lot more information post allocation, and you'll learn a lot more about the manager. So you may learn something in that situation that you didn't realize uh, in terms of maybe their gross exposure, or you know how quick they are to manage to to to, to increase their scale back risk. So you could, in theory, uh, you know, learn something at that stage that you hadn't realized at the at the point of allocation that might prompt you to either resize the allocation or maybe even remove the manager. But in general, it sounds like you'd be extremely slow to fire a manager unless something yeah, I mean, way outside the box. There's different ways of approaching this and there's no right. Obviously, there's the, 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 there is the model, which seems to be the case of the big kind of multi-strat firms of giving traders a certain amount of P&L, you know. And, and then you're out. And you're out. And, and that, that does seem, you know, it does, it's not a kind of a statistical approach. It's more of a, okay, let's find the things that are working well in the markets at the moment and go with those. You can take then the, the statistical approach of saying you do a lot of due diligence ahead of time and say, okay, we think there's an alpha here. We think there's a return series that's interesting, but obviously it's going to be variable over time. So it doesn't make sense to remove it just because of a six month or one year drawdown. You have to have the you have to size it correctly in the portfolio. So I think if you take that that statistical approach, you have to have the ability to stick with managers through ups and downs. And you know, obviously you have performance fees in the industry, so you don't want to be exiting managers and giving up negative uh, accrued incentive fees. So so I mean, basically what that means is that you have to be able to find managers that are you know even better than the ones you've got uh, in, in your portfolio. Um, if you're going to remove a manager and give up that kind of negative accrued incentive fee. So I think, um, you know, that seems like a little bit of a perverse incentive, right? <laughs> like we have, we have this it big is, loss I, built up. We it don't is a bit of away. a perver- perverse incentive. It is. Yeah. But I mean, I, it, I mean, that's, that, that shouldn't be a, a criteria by itself, but it does tip, you know, tip the uh, odds slightly in, in that manager's favor, because I say for the manager who you're entering at, 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 at uh, at high watermark, you're going to be paying more for that manager. So kind of on a like-for-like basis, um, you have to have a good reason for believing that the second manager is going to be uh, going, to, going to outperform. Um, and, you know, th- there's a natural temptation to think they will because they're probably a manager that had been doing better recently uh, relative to the guy that's been underperforming. But but as we know, these things move in cycles. So it's it's. Um, I think the overall lesson is to try and be... Um, you know, to try and think statistically as much as possible, as opposed to, um, you know, I think there's a temptation. I, I'm in the process of, of writing a paper on this. I'm going to put it out in the next couple of weeks and behavioral biases mm-hmm. um, in, in manager selection. There's a tendency to say, you know, to start and to, to see good performance and to justify it and, and, and generate a narrative around the good performance rather than see performance and say, well, let's assume that's uh, just due to chance. And try and disprove that hypothesis that it's due to chance. You know, if you take that mindset, you're going to be a lot more skeptical of the narrative and a lot more questioning of, well, does this manager really have a skill relative to other managers? And that, what sort of heuristics do you have for that as well? Of like, um, all right, I'm allocating this manager. They've had a twenty percent max drawdown. I'm going to let it go one and a half. That two x that. Have, have any no, I such mean, heuristics? I, I, I mean, it, 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 people will have different ones, but generally, you know, you, you should expect a drawdown of, you know, um, two times the, 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 the vol um, over, over, over say, say a 10-year period as, as, as a kind of a benchmark um, in rough terms. I mean, it'd probably be a little bit more than that. Um, 
Um, but 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 yeah. So 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 it's not just that. I mean, I think it's important to have that stop loss, but it's also about the pattern of performance and what you're learning about the pattern of performance as you're allocated to the manager. And then on the flip side of all this, the emerging manager. How do you think about the emerging manager? Someone with a very short track record. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think the emerging man- managers are difficult. You know, it is um, it is difficult because sometimes uh, you know a manager has been in a in a larger shop or they might have been a, a trader at a bank or whatever it is and now they're transitioning into a slightly different environment and maybe they traded a, a portion of a book elsewhere so you know you have to get 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 certainty that what you're looking at in terms of the of the um of the return series is is, is going to be on a like for like basis and and you know there, there might be reasons for believing that that won't be the case um, so I think emerging managers are, are are more difficult. Obviously, smaller managers, you know, more nimble, uh, less capacity constrained, so they can access certain opportunities that that larger managers may not be able to access. So it's certainly interesting from that perspective. But you are taking a different type of risk there. Um, sometimes, you know, there might be the sense that people are always looking for, okay, who's the next manager? Who's the next manager? When there might be a guy there with a 15-year track record okay the sharp mightn't be anything you know off the charts or but but you know a manager who has proved that they can do that over 15 20 years whatever it is with consistency of approach that can still be very valuable in a portfolio context and to me like that manager you can see all their warts right they've they've lived through it the other manager has hidden warts that you're gonna find out about yeah Um, and even you know even two to three years is relatively short period of time to evaluate a manager because you know, it, you know, the two to three years, say, between 20, 2016 and 2019 are very different to the three years we've had in the last three years. So different market environments could just favor a strategy. And so that's why I think there's definitely a strong merit to being able to see, you know, 10 years plus of data. It's not always the case. Certainly five years is, is, is a good a good benchmark to have. But but more my, my philosophy would be more data is better for sure. Yeah, and then more assets, better for sure, too, because every emerging guy hates to hear the, oh, we'd love to allocate you, but we can't be more than 10%, and you, we only do $10 million allocations. Is that a, just a brush off, or is that real? I think it, it depends. It, it can be the case for some people. I mean, if you're using managed accounts, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, yeah. it can be just in, institutional cons- constraints for certain allocators. Um, it shouldn't necessarily be the case. Um you know, if if, if uh, it's more, you know, is did they have the appropriate infrastructure or did they have the risk controls, all of that stuff? Um, I don't see why people should be too worried about being more than a certain percent of, of, of a firm assets. I mean, okay, maybe there, there might be, uh, you know, with, with early stage managers, if, you, if you're investing early in a fund and you're accruing more of the fund fees, then that that can be an issue. But if it's a managed account, it, it shouldn't really be, a, be an issue. All right, moving on. Next, archive. Tell us. Archive, what, yes. Yes. Tell us what you're doing at archive. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I did, yeah. What's that? How'd you come up with the name? I like it. Well, you know, when you start a new firm, you know, you you um, you uh, kind of uh, kind of mull it over for, for for weeks and procrastinate, and you know, ask everybody, what do you think? It's a good name and all of that. And um, you know, uh, I was reading um, um, the, the uh, 
Stephen Schwartzman, uh, Blackstone's book, and he was talking about how that they named their that their firm, and I think his partner was uh, uh, married to the lady who came up at Sesame Street, you know, and she oh, was wow. saying, "Don't worry about the name because you know we we started this program Sesame Street. There was never even a street called Sesame Street. You know, <laughs> if you're successful, people will remember the name. If you're not, it won't matter. Exactly. So, um, so long story there. Archive. It just came to me. Uh, it was. Um, I was looking at something and I thought, oh yeah, maybe that, that's a good one because, you know, I always liked the idea of looking back into the past um, for clues to the future, you know, and certainly that's in the, in the kind of the whole CTA approach of, of, of you know, looking at the past to, uh, to see performance. But, but more than that, just looking at past episodes of history and effectively looking into the archives for, for clues to the future. So, so that was it. Um, so as I say, I was with uh, Abby for, for 10 years, decided, you know, um, I wanted to spin out, do something myself. Um, obviously, my skills and expertise is in this area within managed features, macro, you know, all of my experience going back to, to the 90s. I started off in, in FX and as an FX trader and analyst and then as a, as a macro strategist. Um, so what I'm doing is, is working with, um, with uh, investors, specifically wealth managers, small asset managers, people who have an interest in accessing the space, but, def- but don't uh, necessarily have the uh, expertise in evaluating managers or in portfolio construction in the space. Um, so, so looking to work with those types of entities, um, either in terms of assisting on manager selection and manager insights and, 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 and portfolio construction as well. So part of my motivation for doing it was, you know, looking at the world, I felt, you know, us in the managed future space were always saying, oh, the outlook is good. But I really felt that, you know, there was an interesting opportunity where we are now everybody's saying the 60 40 is dead but what is the alternative to it um and i I, you know the markets have actually been uh, you know you couldn't have said that the markets would have been this good for for these types of strategies uh, a year or two ago but but i do think that that we're into an environment which will be favorable and i do think that there will be demand for these types of strategies so i think it's a, a good time to be starting a firm in the space was it driven by meb faber's tweet of uh he's he was like i'm dying for some newsletter service i'd pay big money for it to give me like here's who's who you need to be looking at in this space <laughs> i hadn't seen that actually i'll try and dig that up and uh forward it to you. uh and it's mainly you're dealing for now in liquids yeah i mean uh, it's 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 everything in this area you know whether it's macro discretionary quant uh, managed futures trend short-term Volatility trading, commodities, currency. So all of that in in the liquid space um, is is where where, where where my background is. And yeah, I, it's been a space that you know, as we've been saying, has gone through ups and downs over the last decade. But but we're into a, a, a better period now. And 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 I do think it, it the outlook is is good for 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 the coming years. And you know, I think if you know, I'm obviously based in Dublin here. Looking across um, Europe in particular, if you, there's a lot of money invested in in kind of asset allocation models, multi-asset models, and really, a lot of these strategies are very underrepresented in in, in a lot of portfolios. Um, you know, I remember I went to a, a CFA um, investment workshop in, in 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 Harvard a couple of years ago, and you know, really really interesting event. You know, you meet a lot of interesting people in the industry, and you hear lots of high quality uh, speakers from from harvard but but it struck me you know engaging with a peer group of you know 40 50 investors from around the world a lot of people still weren't that familiar with with, with the space you know so i do think that there's a 
you know, there's a, a, an, an untapped opportunity there over time to, to educate more and more people on, on the, the macro and managed future space. Right. I'm, it's like I've been doing blog posts on managed futures for 15 years, people. Come on. Catch yeah. up. <laughs> um, and then, sorry, I keep coming back to liquid. So you're talking USITs, mutual funds and ETFs on the U.S. side. Yeah, I mean, not, not just, I, I, I use the term liquid alternatives with some people. And, and it's yeah. funny, I, from my mind, it's just that the, the strategies themselves are, are got liquid. It, got it, got it. Okay. You know, I, I think from a US perspective, liquid also automatically means mutual yeah. funds. So it's yeah, not yeah. just that. I mean, private placement, managed accounts, you know, whatever it is, the, the vehicle is less, less, less important as uh, more just the strategies I'm talking about. And what, how do you view that? space over in Europe. It seems the USITS wrapper is a little more constrictive than the mutual fund wrapper. Some of these strategies probably can't get fully what they want done in that wrapper. Yeah, it seems to be, I mean, there's, um, there are a number of trend following managers you can access in, in a USITS format. Some of them have commodities, some don't. Um, you know, the quant macro space is fairly constrained. So I would say the USITS um set of strategies isn't very extensive there are some and um, you can access you know um alternative investment funds so kind of like, like, like private placement type funds but in a european regulated structure so so that can be interesting for some people but um i think there's an evolution the, the whole use it's wrapper it, it it ebbs and flows a little bit it you know for some people it's it, it's all use it's all use it's and then you read well some people are saying well okay maybe Maybe I would rather have a an offshore fund or a an alternative fund to have the fully unconstrained version of, of the strategy rather than having the slightly more constrained strategy uh, within the use it. Um, so it does tend to kind of ebb and flow a bit, um, and who knows? Maybe maybe the regulations will will change over time again. Love it. Um, and then lastly, how do you like co-hosting or guest hosting? What do you call it on Top Traders Unplugged? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, I'd never done any podcasting uh, before, so uh, really great to get the opportunity. So Niels uh, castro Brasson uh, invited me on, you know, at the start of this year. I've done a couple with him, and then he's invited me to do this uh, allocator series. So I'm speaking to CIOs and other allocators. So that's been really interesting. Um, you know, one of the I don't know upsides or downsides. A lot of the people I've 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 interviewed have their own books, so I've had to go and swat up on, on what they've been writing about before before I've interviewed them. So that's been that's forced me to to, to do that. But yeah, no, it, it is interesting. I mean, it's interesting speaking to a lot of the investors about the kind of the non-investing challenges as well. You know, speaking to people like you know Sebastian Page runs multi-asset at T Rowe Price, and you know a lot of his focus is on leadership and and building teams. Or I was speaking to uh, Elizabeth Burton at, at Hawaii, and again, you think the CIO role is all about making the big calls about where the markets are going and asset allocation, but then there's this other element of managing people, and and then there's the, the whole you know the behavioral side of things keeps coming back. How do you cultivate a behavioral edge, which is all about you know, how do you put the right processes in, play, in place to try and avoid the mistakes of, um, you know, selling out that manager just because it's a, a brief drawdown as opposed to something structural. So, so it is interesting. It's the same challenges for everybody, but interesting to hear it from, from big allocators to get their perspective on, on what's, um, what's, what's interesting. You know, I think the, um, what, what, what you definitely hear is, is uh, you know, more interest in all so we'll, we, we you know we're probably biased with some of the people we pick but certainly yeah you know the, the, there's certainly that strong sense of um 
that 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 will that that, that certainly the forty side of the sixty forty may may see more more infiltration with with all over time. Uh, the got my brain going. Like, do you see that some of these big allocators make the same mistakes as like a small family office or a right? It seems like the larger the bankroll, it doesn't necessarily mean the more sophistication. No, I, I think it's true. I mean, I, that's 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 been my experience in 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 uh, uh, you know on, on the institutional asset management side too. That you think it's it's uh, it, you know people won't make those mistakes. But one of the things I you know I think about is everybody reads about behavioral biases and 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 uh, says, oh yeah, I can see how other people have that and, and yeah, I right. identify these things. But it's really hard. <laughs> in the moment of making the decision. So we're having the discussion about the manager not to have some kind of bias influencing your opinion about them. So it, it is it is really hard, regardless of whether you're a retail trader or individual investor or, or a large institution. I think the best thing you can do is to be probably more process driven, which some institutions will be. Um, the risk with that is, is, is it becomes more box ticking. Um, yeah. So I think it's a real it's a really tricky balance to try and uh, to, to 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 be cognizant of those biases, uh, but but not just be too process and rigid in your structures. Right. What's the Jason Buck would say the art versus science, right? Like there's a heavy yeah, no, dose absolutely. of art to it that you can't just process. Process. Absolutely. Out. Yeah. No, for sure. And then it's odd to me that they have these. You you'd think it isolate that person keep them out of the hr and all the people business and just let their brain yes. work on the allocations right that's interesting that they're dealing with all that side of the business well it's true it's a classic scenario you know the guy who's good at trading won't necessarily be a good trading manager or the same same from right. an investment perspective or, or a research perspective so people yeah i don't know it's um <clears throat> trying to think you know, my own experience, I, I, I witnessed both sides of it. Some, some good people managers who weren't necessarily, you know, strong, you know, really strong investment backgrounds. And that did work well. Um, so I, I think it's, um, you know, speaking to, to some of the managers or some of the guests, it's certainly something that, that has been a challenge for them that they've actually actively had to work on, um, you know, because they probably come from more more of us uh, of having a, a kind of a trading or investing skill background, you know? All right. We're going to finish up with our, what would you invest in segment? Uh, <coughs> give you a few levels. So you got 10 K that's all you got. What are you, where are you putting it? <coughs> yeah. I think if you've got 10 K, obviously, you, you know, you're looking for something speculative. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not a, 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 a. I've done a little bit of VC investing, and it's something that I'm kind of getting more interested in. Um, so I would say certainly on the pick something from a VC perspective. Obviously, the digital assets is a space at the moment, but uh, I'm not. I'm not really a crypto fan. I haven't been to date, but I do think there may be interesting opportunities in the whole infrastructure side of things. So, <clears throat> so that could be something uh, from from a speculative speculative perspective. Uh, 100k. You're going up to 100k. Where where's that going? I think once you get up to the 100 to to to, to kind of a million levels, then you're getting into more typical kind of investing and, and asset allocation. So obviously, I'll talk my. <clears throat> you know, I, I do think we're into an environment of you know more difficult for for, for financial assets, um, probably higher inflation over time, um, possibly you know financial repression. So. 
more negative on financial assets, more positive on real assets and uh, trading strategies that, that, that are favored by that. So that includes everything from, you know, obviously my own, you know, I wouldn't dissuade anybody putting 100K into trend following or macro, but equally farmland, I think is interesting and, and real assets uh, like that are, are, are going to stand up over the next uh, next decade or so. Um, and then you sort of wrapped a million into there. So I'll, we'll jump all the way up to 100 million. 100 million is easy. If you have 100 million, call Archive Capital and, and we'll construct <laughs> something for you. <laughs> but don't you want to still have some portion in equities, but, right? You're going to... I think I think one of the things that, that, that that's also interesting that, that you're getting um, more... Uh, that that's kind of coming on the radar to a greater extent is the use of um, the use of futures for 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 equity for beta as well and combining mm-hmm. um, alternatives with 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 futures beta. So that's something that we're starting to see more in the market. I think that's interesting. Um, that could be something for somebody with the with the one hundred k or or the one million as well. So um, um, yeah, I I. I, I, I I'll, I'll, I'll say the, the 100 million, um, I think you're, you're talking into institutional portfolio. You're looking at a multi-strat, multi-strat um, portfolio in, in this space. And then I'll flip that a little bit. So with my that 100 million, what's the proper, and it's obviously all depends on the person and the client, but what's your range for how much should be allocated to macro futures type strategies? Yeah, I think like... Uh, yeah. It's it's as as I've been saying at the outset, it's it's about uh, harvesting different approaches to to trading the market. So I think you can definitely have a really nice portfolio diversified across price price trend following, you know, economic uh, trend following or, or, or quant macro, um, coupled with um, you know the other strategies in the space. So you know volatility trading. Um, uh, systematic relative value as well, and then uh, looking at opportunities pr- on the discretionary side, uh, whether it's more commodity focused or, or more traditional macro. So I do think um, you know it's it probably hasn't been in vogue for a while, but it sounds like um, investors are warming to this to, to a much greater extent. Obviously, a lot of flows have gone into the, into the large multi strats, and that's a slightly different approach. But I do think. You know, for diversified macro portfolios are interesting, and when I say macro, I'm including managed futures within that. But five percent, right? Like, there's a point where it doesn't even do anything for you. Oh, you mean it within your overall portfolio? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I no, I would, I would be thinking more like twenty percent. Right. Yeah, yeah. So if you're thinking about your sixty forty portfolio, and and you're really looking at the forty side, um, you know. What's the best way to manage that? Um, let's go to forty. Why not? Let's go to forty. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, some people will will want something maybe from more from an income perspective, and there are other uncredited strategies out there. But yeah, maybe let's go to forty. Yeah, why not? And uh, let's go oh for let's go above hundred and and use uh, futures for leverage, and and then you get it gets very interesting. Definitely, and I think that's the mistake we see a lot of institutional allocators make, and you know, family offices of like I'm going to try alts and do five percent. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't do anything. It's not going to move the needle one way or the other. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. Any last thoughts before we leave it? Where can we uh, find out about Archive? What's the web? Yeah, it's archivecapital.ie. Um, and you'll see, find me on LinkedIn as well. I do I post a little bit on LinkedIn. Starting to warm up a little bit on Twitter. I've been w- w- off the base on Twitter. Right. Come on. Uh, but Come on in. The water's, the water's fine. 
<laughs> and um, yeah, obviously I'm hosting, co-hosting a bit on Top Traders Unplugged, the Allocator series is there. It's, it's uh, I'm talking to CIOs and allocators, so that's interesting. So so check that out. That's great. You want to come be guest host here sometime? Yeah, certainly open to us. Yeah, <laughs> done. Uh, if you can get David Harding, we'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> And I forgot to say, unhappy St. Patty's Day. Go, go have a green beer for me. I don't have a point there. Thanks a million. Yeah. Do they do green beer in Ireland, or that's passe? We don't know. There's none of that. It's, I think it's <laughs> Chicago. The, the river is green, isn't it? But uh, no, no, no green beer. It's 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 black and white Guinness. Right. If you can turn your beer green, it's probably not a true Irish beer, right? It's it's a little too light. Probably not one you want to drink. <laughs> All right, Alan, this has been fun. Thanks so much. Uh, I don't know what time it is over there. Time for dinner. Um, Coming up to dinner time, yeah. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.